Hey everyone, welcome back to all my listeners. Now, I just wanted to give a huge shout out to my good friend, Kimberly Jolivet Williams. Our session together last week was so well received. She's been reached out to, I've been thanked, and our conversation allowed her to debut in the top 100 charts for one of her very first podcast opportunities. So thanks to all my listeners for tuning in week after week or if you're simply binge listening and catching up on all my prior episodes for season four, know that I appreciate you because it's you that continue me to keep on going, to keep developing this valuable content as my season four carries on in this space of healthcare. Now, I hope you're all having a great day so far because I know I am. And if it's your first time finding me, thank you so much and welcome. Welcome to episode nine of my fourth season. Today is Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. My name is Sonal Patel, and this is the Paint the Medical Picture podcast series. So I cannot believe it's the last week of October, right? Holy mackerel, it's the end of the month, and I'm still waiting for my feisty maple tree in the backyard to turn red. I love that color. But all the other trees in the hood are bright, golden, yellows, and oranges casting their light everywhere. I just am in love with the autumn season. It's my favorite. Now, all right, guys, that's enough about trees and maple tree tapping, but I've got so much to get into today. So let's dive into my compliance tip where I'll be talking about back to basics with reading your NCDs. And let's not forget, hey, hey, it's my favorite month-end episode where I discuss highlights from the month of October's criminal and civil enforcement cases involving fraud, waste, and abuse. And I round out today's episode with a remarkable quote on illumination from South African anti-apartheid and human rights activist Desmond Tutu. If you've checked me out on LinkedIn, you know I'm all about compliance and protecting our physicians and valued healthcare professionals when it comes to the business of medicine. I hope this week with me brings you enough to take back to your organizations, to want to dive in deeper, to use my tips and best practices to ensure success. I hope this podcast will help you boost the quality of documentation capture and improve coding accuracy as you help your providers paint the medical picture. If you like what you're hearing, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button now so you don't miss another episode. Please write in a review and kindly drop me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to my podcast. I'd really love your support. And as always, a friendly disclaimer. Remember, I'm bringing you the news, current healthcare industry news, my compliance tips and recommendations based on my over 10 years of experience in front office, back end, coding, and billing for multi-specialty physicians, compliance, and auditing for both ENM and surgical operative reports. These are my opinions alone and are not to be construed as legal advice. So let's get into Newsworthy, the month's fraud, waste, and abuse cases. The month of October saw 29 cases as of the recording of this episode. 
Early October saw three generic pharmaceutical manufacturers who have agreed to pay a total of $447.2 million to resolve alleged violations of the False Claims Act arising from conspiracies to fix the price of various generic drugs. These conspiracies allegedly resulted in higher drug prices for federal health care programs and beneficiaries, according to the Justice Department. The government alleges that between the years of 2013 through 2015, all three companies paid and received compensation prohibited by the anti-kickback statute, the AKS, through arrangements on price, supply, and allocation of customers with other pharmaceutical manufacturers for certain generic drugs manufactured by the companies. And the acting U.S. attorney on the case stated, quote, this series of civil settlements should serve as a wake-up call for the generic drug industry. Generic drug companies must and will be held accountable for price-fixing schemes, which not only cause massive financial harm to federal health care programs, but also may impart the care available to patients, end quote. Now, she later goes on and states, quote, we will continue to aggressively pursue these violations of the anti-kickback statute and the False Claims Act and obtain significant recoveries, end quote. And also of significance in connection with its settlement agreement here, each company also entered into a five-year corporate integrity agreement, a CIA, with the OIG, which is of course, our Office of Inspector General. The CIAs include unique internal monitoring and price transparency provisions. They also require the companies to implement compliance measures, including risk assessment programs, executive recoupment provisions, and compliance-related certifications from company executives and board members. Also in early October, we saw a disturbing case regarding prescription drugs. Here, a pharmacy and owner agreed to pay just over $1.5 million to resolve a lawsuit alleging dispensing of controlled substances with no legitimate medical purpose. The United States has reached a civil settlement with the pharmacy and the owner resolving a civil complaint bringing claims under the False Claims Act, the FCA, and the Controlled Substances Act, the CSA, for damages, statutory penalties, and injunctive relief related to the unlawful dispensing of controlled substances, including controlled substances that were submitted to Medicaid or Medicare for reimbursement. Specifically, they repeatedly dispensed prescriptions for controlled substances while disregarding warning signs of diversion or red flags indicating that the prescriptions were not legitimate. The United States alleged that the types of red flags that the pharmacy and owner ignored included clear instances of tampering with written prescriptions. Dangerous combinations of drugs commonly sought after for recreational purposes, as well as amounts of opioids that exceeded CDC guidance by as much as 17.5 times the recommended maximum daily dosage. In the complaint, the United States further accused the pharmacy of routinely dispensing prescriptions for subsists, 
which is an oral fentanyl spray, which is subject to heightened FDA restrictions and indicated only for opioid-tolerant patients experiencing breakthrough pain due to cancer. The United States contended that the pharmacy and owner knowingly dispensed high dosages of subsis to patients who did not qualify for the drug, and that the vast majority of the subsis the pharmacy dispensed was prescribed by a physician, specifically a neurologist who had in fact pleaded guilty to illegally distributing prescription opioids in 2018. This physician, this neurologist, also prescribed to women with whom he had lived with and had personal relationships. Moving on to mid-October. Mid-October saw in the largest settlement of its kind a private equity firm and former executives of a mental health center in Massachusetts who have agreed to pay $25 million for allegedly causing fraudulent claims to be submitted to the state's Medicaid program, known as MassHealth, for mental health care services provided to patients by unlicensed, unqualified, and improperly supervised staff members at clinics across the state. This particular settlement is the largest publicly disclosed government healthcare fraud settlement in the nation involving private equity oversight of healthcare providers, as well as the largest amount a private equity company itself has agreed to pay to resolve fraud allegations involving healthcare portfolio companies. It is also the biggest Massachusetts-only Medicaid fraud settlement. The Attorney General's office alleged that the clinics named in this complaint suffered significant gaps in licensing and supervision of therapists during the relevant time period. The AG's investigation revealed that the mental health center had a widespread pattern of employing unlicensed, unqualified, and unsupervised staff at its mental health facilities in violation of mass health regulations. According to the amended complaint filed by the AG's office and the whistleblower, by submitting fraudulent claims to mass health for mental health services provided by unlicensed, unqualified, and unsupervised personnel, this mental health center violated the Massachusetts False Claims Act. MassHealth pays for mental health services provided to MassHealth members by qualified clinicians and qualified counselors who are subject to certain licensure and supervision requirements. Mental health centers that employ those rendering mental health services must comply with certain core supervision requirements set out in applicable regulations. And more news in PSTEM fraud that I've reported on in prior episodes. Mid-October also had a U.S. attorney announcing four additional enforcement actions as part of data-driven national efforts to combat PSTIM fraud schemes and recover millions. There are three settlements and the filing of a complaint under the False Claims Act in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. These are the latest actions in the national investigation into the scheme of improper billing involving PSTIM electroacupuncture devices. Remember, P-STEM is also branded as, among other things, ANSI-STEM, Stivax, Neuro-STEM, and NSS2Bridge. Federal healthcare programs do not reimburse for P-STEM devices 
whether they are characterized as an electroacupuncture device or as an implantable neurostimulator. The enforcement actions involve certain parties who sold P-STEM devices and or promoted them as billable to Medicare and other federal healthcare programs, which then caused providers to submit fraudulent claims. The United States alleges that these promoters profited by conspiring together to make false representations to providers that P-STEM was reimbursable under billing codes that paid thousands of dollars per procedure. Those codes were meant for legitimate, surgically implanted neurostimulators to manage chronic pain. However, P-STEM devices can be applied in a few moments in an office setting without anesthesia by someone with minimal training. The promoters allegedly had knowledge that the P-STEM devices were not reimbursable by federal health care programs, but pushed the non-surgical devices anyway. The three settlements announced are all pursuant to the DOJ's inability to pay policy. And the three parties involved in these settlements also agreed to exclusions from federal health care programs with a combination of 20-year exclusions as well as a seven-year exclusion. Now, also most interesting to mention, in a related case, the United States also filed a complaint against a man and his compliance consulting company alleging violations of the False Claims Act. This man is a chiropractor who promoted himself as a medical reimbursement consultant. Various marketers and distributors of P-STEM devices allegedly paid this man a monthly fee to provide coding recommendations to customers. Certain providers also allegedly paid this man directly for his coding guidance. As detailed in the complaint, the United States alleges that this man had knowledge that he was providing incorrect advice. This man allegedly knew that P-STEM was not reimbursable by federal health care programs because it was acupuncture and not a surgically implanted neurostimulator. The United States alleges that this man caused providers to submit to the federal Medicare and TRICARE programs thousands of fraudulent claims for P-STEM devices worth at least $20 million. And of course, there were also many, many of the usual suspects like more opioids distributors, kickbacks, bribery schemes, adult abuse cases, fraudulent DME billing, money laundering, as well as expensive and unnecessary urine drug testing. But I'd like to highlight an October data snapshot report by the OIG conducted because there have been concerns about the potential for fraud, waste, and abuse associated with expanded telehealth services. This data snapshot provides information to policymakers as well as other stakeholders about the relationship between beneficiaries and providers for telehealth services. These data are critical to informing decisions about how to structure telehealth services in Medicare on a more permanent basis. Understanding how likely beneficiaries are to receive telehealth services from a provider with whom they have had an established relationship and the average timeframe between an in-person visit and a telehealth service can help to inform decisions on how frequently in-person care may be needed to be paired with telehealth services.
This snapshot is part of a series of reports on telehealth that are still forthcoming. The other reports will focus on telehealth utilization as well as program integrity. The OIG reviewed Medicare claims data for telehealth services provided from March through December of 2020. They determined the proportion of beneficiaries who received telehealth services only from providers with whom they had an established relationship and looked for any differences among the 10 most common types of telehealth services and between beneficiaries enrolled in traditional Medicare and those enrolled in Medicare Advantage. For beneficiaries who had an established relationship with their providers, they determined that the average amount of time between their first telehealth service and their most recent in-person visit for each of their providers. The OIG found that most beneficiaries received telehealth services from providers with whom they had an established relationship. Notably, 84% of beneficiaries received telehealth services only from providers with whom they had an established relationship. Those enrolled in traditional Medicare were more likely to receive services from providers with whom they did have an established relationship with, compared to beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare Advantage. This pattern persisted among virtually all of the most common telehealth services. Beneficiaries tended to see their providers in person about four months prior to their first telehealth service, on average. And beneficiaries most commonly received e-visits, virtual check-ins, and telephone evaluation and management services via telehealth from providers with whom they had an established relationship. E-visits and virtual check-ins are brief telephone calls or online interactions via a patient portal. Telephone evaluation and management services are telephone calls to discuss a beneficiary's medical condition. These calls can last up to a half an hour. And in total, 84% of beneficiaries who had e-visits and virtual check-ins and 84% of beneficiaries who had telephone evaluation and management services via telehealth had an established relationship with their providers. These high proportions are not surprising because these types of services are designated for beneficiaries who have established relationships with their providers. Now, in total, beneficiaries received about 45.5 million office visits delivered via telehealth, which accounted for nearly half of all telehealth services provided from March through December 2020. But 16% received telehealth services from at least one provider with whom they had no prior relationship. Now, the OIG concludes that the data on how likely beneficiaries are to receive telehealth services from a provider with whom they have had an established relationship can be used to inform decisions about how to best use telehealth in Medicare and should be taken into account as policymakers continue to examine telehealth utilization and concerns about telehealth being vulnerable to fraud, waste, and abuse. This includes decisions about which services to allow to be delivered via telehealth on a more permanent basis and to what extent Medicare should require that beneficiaries have a relationship with their providers prior to receiving certain telehealth services. All right. I mean, wow, 
So the month of October saw some pretty hefty enforcement actions once again. But that telehealth data snapshot reveals things aren't nearly as egregious as first thought to be, right? 84% of telehealth visits were conducted compliantly between provider and established patient. I do my very best each month trying to highlight those cases I find most interesting. And I try to provide my solid guidance and advice to providers to be mindful of correct coding and compliant billing practices to avoid joining these very serious, these very public, and often very hefty outcomes. I always believe these types of fraud, waste, and abuse cases are most helpful. So please take a deeper look into these reports and see how they may affect you, your provider, your facility. Start self-auditing your service claims and coordinating documentation to ensure you are meeting compliance. And stay tuned for my fraud, waste, and abuse updates. They drop the last Wednesday of each month. And now it's time for my best practice tips in trusty tip. So in today's new back to basics compliance tip, I wanted to focus on reading NCDs. In my experience and in my opinion, I do not see the NCDs, those are national covered determinations, being effectively utilized when coding is performed. Let's keep in mind, Medicare coverage is limited to items and services that are reasonable and necessary for the diagnosis or treatment of an illness or injury, and within the scope of a Medicare benefit category. National coverage determinations, again, our NCDs, are made through an evidence-based process with opportunities for public participation. In some cases, CMS's own research is supplemented by an outside technology assessment and or a consultation with the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee, or MedCAC. In the absence of a national coverage policy, an item or service may be covered at the discretion of the Medicare contractors based on a local coverage determination, the LCD. And remember, I did put the spotlight on LCDs in last week's Back to Basics trusty tip. Now, our NCDs are binding on all Medicare contractors, quality improvement organizations, health maintenance organizations, competitive medical plans, and healthcare prepayment plans. The Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services determines whether a particular item or service is covered nationally by Medicare, which essentially grants, limits, or excludes national coverage to all Medicare beneficiaries. Now, there are Medicare coverage guidance documents, which include such facts like the Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003, which requires that the secretary makes available to the public the factors that are considered in making national coverage determinations of whether an item or service is reasonable and necessary. To do this, CMS is producing guidance documents similar to those used by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. That's our FDA. 
Now, these guidance documents give the public, particularly individuals or organizations that might request an NCD, detailed information on the NCD, on the NCD process and related evaluation and decision-making factors. Now, guidance documents represent the agency's current thinking on a particular topic. They do not create or confer any rights for or on any person and do not operate to bind CMS or the public. Now, take a deep breath. There are, there are definitely a lot of NCDs. Breathe in. There are roughly 334 that are housed in the Medicare National Coverage Determinations Manual, Chapter 1, Parts 1, Parts 2, Parts 3, and Parts 4, Coverage Determinations. So, I've pulled just one. Let's just take a look at breast reconstruction following mastectomy. Now, that's our NCD number 140.2. Now, the effective date of this version has been around since January 1st of 1997. And the benefit category that it falls under is for physician services. Now, this particular NCD stresses a please note. Please note, this may not be an all exhaustive list of applicable Medicare benefit categories for this item or service. Now, the NCD goes on and talks about the item or description for the service. During recent years, there has been a considerable change in the treatment of diseases of the breast, such as fibrocystic disease and cancer. While extirpation of the disease remains of primary importance, the quality of life following initial treatment is increasingly recognized as of great concern. The increased use of breast reconstruction procedures is due to several factors. Number one, a change in the epidemiology of breast cancer, including an apparent increase in incidence. Number two, improved surgical skills and techniques. Number three, the continuing development of better prostheses. And finally, increasing awareness by physicians of the importance of post-surgical psychological adjustment. The NCD moves on and talks about indications and limitations of coverage. Reconstruction of the affected and the contralateral unaffected breast following a medically necessary mastectomy is considered a relatively safe and effective non-cosmetic procedure. Accordingly, program payment may be made for breast reconstruction surgery following removal of a breast for any medical reason. Program payment may not be made for breast reconstruction for cosmetic reasons. And again, cosmetic surgery is excluded from coverage under the Social Security Act's Section 1862A-10. So, I know this is just one, again, one out of roughly 334 NCDs, but it's really, really important for certified medical coders and providers to be aware of these national coverage determinations as they apply to you, your specialty, your coding matrix. I really do hope this small series on the back to basics of reading your LCDs and NCDs 
has proved to be important. It's fundamental if you have Medicare as a payer to keep your eye on all LCDs and NCDs and make sure you are adhering to them to ensure you are meeting the medical necessity from the very start. When the documentation paints the medical picture with clarity and with vibrancy from the onset of care, a certified medical coder can then abstract codes with accuracy. And finally, in this week's inspiring quote in Spark is from Desmond Tutu. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all of the darkness. Absolutely true, right? I think this is a perfect quote that reminds us, inspires us on the importance of illumination. This quote reminds us that hope is the light, that light is the hope we all feel from within. This statement allows us to let illumination cast out the darkness, cast out the shadows. Desmond Tutu's wise words give power to hope and to light. We should take his wise words to allow ourselves to give power to the light, power to hope. We should not let ourselves succumb to the darkness that is all around, but rather we should allow hope to be our illumination. I am happy Desmond Tutu's spark still burns brightly in all of us today. So that wraps up today's episode. Please go out and make this a great day, an incredible week for yourselves. Aim a little higher, do a little more, and give back in any way you can in 2021. There's so much each one of us can do. Now, in today's final note, I just wanted to remind everyone that the Moderna and the Janssen booster vaccines have been approved six months out from the first two doses for Moderna. The booster Moderna will be at half the dosage of the first two inoculations. And the booster for Janssen will be two months after the first inoculation. And to be clear, for now, the FDA decision only applies to certain groups of people who have been vaccinated against COVID-19. Those include people over the age of 65, as well as people aged 18 through 64 who are considered to be at high risk of severe COVID-19 due to their underlying health conditions or who live or work in a higher risk setting. Some examples include our healthcare workers, our grocery store workers, our teachers, and those living in long-term care facilities or homeless shelters. As always, I appreciate you diving into today with me. And if you all want more information from me, go ahead and follow me on LinkedIn because my LinkedIn posts are still blazed in pink these final few days in the month of October. For Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So I'll leave links to everything in the show notes below. Now, please continue staying safe and healthy, practice safety for one and all during our collective, seemingly never, ever, ever ending life and times of coronavirus. Thank you all so much for listening in on today's episode. And I hope every week with me brings you closer to helping your providers paint a masterpiece. See you next Wednesday. 